John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1324.EZ0808, certificate number 33725, track 61. One of the great Dylan albums. (laughs) Blood on track 61. (laughs) Have you ever recorded an album with a track 61? No. How close did you get? (laughs) (laughs) I got up to track 10. Is there any record with (laughs) that? What about that They Might Be Giants record that has all the little mini songs? Oh, uh, Please pass the milk, please. Right. Is that track 61? Fingertips. Fingertips. Aren't you the guy that hit Hit me in the the eye? eye. I wonder how many of those we could just sing if we tried to think of all of them Um, instead of talking about the actual track 61. Come on. And wreck my car. And there's, what's that blue thing doing here? <laughs> Track 61 is a mysterious... I knew it was mysterious. You know why? Why? Because it sounds like Area 51. It does. It's like 10 more mysterious than Area 51. Although it's not as mysterious as Area 51. It's, Damn it. it uh, you can actually see Track 61 without too much trouble. You don't have to climb up to a, to a peak is that how you saw Area 51? Yeah, you climbed well, up to a peak? No, I, I saw Area 51 when they tried to dissect me when I originally arrived on Earth. Uh, but then I adopted a... It's like your Ellis Island. Do you I go back there with your family? Here it is, guys. This is how I came to this great land. I adopted the, uh, the, the shape and form of an Air Force major mm. and killed everyone in the room and then took the elevator to the surface. And then you chose... A third form, which is this. Well, which is this. You were briefly an Air Force major, but just for a few minutes. No, then after I got to the surface, I spread my black wings and flew to Seattle, where I assumed my final form. (laughs) Your final. (laughs) This isn't even his final form. (laughs) Well, that's great. The secret origin. Yeah, secret origin of, of... well, at least my time on Earth. You don't know where I came from or what I really am. But even with all that access, have you ever been to track 61? No, although I've seen Track 61. Track 61 is visible as you leave Grand Central Station on any train headed out, particularly trains on the left-hand side. Uh, You'd be heading, what, north, north. You'd be headed north out of Grand Central. Yeah. Um, Track 61 is a train station under the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. So you can picture the Waldorf Astoria there on Park Avenue just 
north of Grand Central. It's like uh, in the 40s, it's 50th maybe? It is on 49th. 49th, yeah, so, okay. So just there between Park and Lex. Um, this is the kind of thing where people who live in New York and LA think that everyone should understand all their local references. Right. And here we are just rambling on and there are many, many people listening to the show who have never been to New York. And in fact, futurelings may think of New York as just a giant crater in the middle of, of, uh, <laughs> of what is the Hudson river to them. Like, or maybe like it's the, the Splork River. Like the Ground Zero Monument is actually in the middle of a much larger Ground Zero <laughs> Monument. It's like con just concentric Ground Zeros now. <laughs> there's there's just this the top of the Empire State Building just sticking out of the water there, sticking out of a giant bay. You know, we have a lot of local references on this show, but it's to Seattle, a city that we know no one actually uh, understands or can visualize. Well, they think of Seattle as an archipelago of small weird islands filled with filled with basically sentient fleece. I've seen a map of a, you know, projected Seattle when, if the polar ice caps were to completely melt. Have you seen this map? I have. Are you on dry land? I am. Because this is pr pretty high. It is. I possess the map, in fact. And, I, you know, when I bought this house, I made certain that it would survive any, any superheated lahar from any of the, our local volcanoes. I can just see you out with a hammer and some plywood <laughs> making those modifications that would make your house <laughs> lahar proof. Actually, I think, I think this house might be pretty close to waterfront property. In the event of a of a catastrophe, yeah, I'm within a couple streets of the water line. I think the the ridge I'm on will become a nice little peninsula extending south. Won't that be nice? It'll be great. Just a short walk down to the beach, <laughs> <laughs> where you see the the roofs of your neighbors' houses descend into the murky depths. Yeah, I wonder how much of that kind of spelunking there will be. It'll happen gradually. So much? Are you kidding me? That's where I would spend all my time. But it won't be like a deluge. Um, right. You know, you know, every year it'll just be a few more houses. Uh, but, um, the Waldorf Astoria, which is sort of the, for, there's no for, way to get back when there's two steps removed. That's what I've learned. You, you can't, you just have you to can't jump. segue back when it's two segues. No, you yeah. have to, you have to leap back a giant leap. Uh, the hotel, which is the sort of the premier hotel of New York city for many, many decades. You said it in a kind of a French way. Premier. Le Premier Hotel. The Premier Hotel. It was two Premier Hotels, right? Do you know the story? Tell me the Waldorf Astoria two hotels story. I guess the Astor family, the, the descendants of John Jacob Astor, mm -hmm. the fur guy, they were, they were fighting and uh, some wealthy Astor decides to build a giant hotel, I think at the time on 5th, right next to his aunt's mansion just to piss her off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> she moves out and some other brother builds another hotel next door. So there's, there's two hotels right there. And they, there was the Waldorf and the Astoria. They did not hyphenate until a little connection was built. Uh, I don't know, early, very early 20th century, maybe Peacock Alley was literally the hyphen that connected the Waldorf and the Astoria. That is such a lovely story of, of family of, hatred. Of family hatred. The Waldorf Astoria is actually built um, they secured the air rights over the New York Central Railway. It's built sort of in the, in the atmosphere above the tracks, and it isn't, they don't actually own the land. They're leasing the location of the Waldorf Astoria from the train. Which so that some railroad still owns their footprint? Yeah, the railroad, because the entirety of the sub-basement of the Astoria, or the Waldorf Astoria, is train tracks. I mean, that's the only, the enormous number of tracks that lead into Grand Central all are right underneath the hotel, which makes track 61 possible. 
Track 61 is is beneath, is in the bowels of the Waldorf Astoria. It is. It is a train station that serves only the Waldorf Astoria. Really? And it was built uh, during the tenure of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a way of masking his polio. Oh, so he, because if he pulled up to the hotel in any other way, it would be clear that he's having, he's having to right, he would, get into his wheelchair or... It was a very, it was a public performance arriving at the hotel. And he, being a New Yorker, traveled often from Washington, D.C. to New York and stayed at the Waldorf Astoria. And so had this, uh, the federal government commissioned it being built, but did not pay for it. It was paid for by the railroad so that he could access the hotel, you know, without, as you say, appearing on the streets in a wheelchair. This is the kind of thing where if uh, our, you know, if President Trump wanted some business to pay for some, this no doubt super expensive uh, bit of infrastructure just for his ego, you know, can you imagine like President Trump demanding a roof be put on something so no one could see his hair from above or something? Well, concealing his polio wasn't just, uh, I don't think just an ego move. I think it really, they were afraid that it would throw into question his capability as a, as a leader of the free world. The idea then being that a disability cast a shadow on all your other abilities. The craziness of able, like this is the first train station that ableism built, That's I assume. Right. Well, maybe not. Uh, I, I haven't like investigated the whole record of train stations built to, yeah. to mask various disabilities. You have a few systems left to look at. <laughs> haven't done Cairo, haven't done Bratislava. <laughs> and this was before the war when it was, I mean, during the war, it would be like, deeply unpatriotic to reveal the president's condition, right? It would be bad for the effort against the forces of evil. Well, you know, the, this was an era when there was a considerable noblesse oblige and the... Afforded to uh, political leaders. Yeah, and the, the fourth estate, the, uh, the news media generally allowed famously Kennedy to have affairs and FDR to have polio. This went on shockingly late. Do you remember how shocked everybody was when the Miami Herald actually staked out Gary Hart in 1988? You know, this is some guy who'd apparently been womanizing for years and made the mistake of telling the Washington Post, follow me around, see what happens. Yeah. So the Miami Herald, who actually did have, had received a tip and actually did have somebody staked outside his place in Georgetown, everyone was shocked that they actually reported that, uh, Young women were coming in and out. It felt like a breach of some kind of uh, agreed upon etiquette. As late as 88, this was not how we did things. There was a game and it was played like this, which to me, I feel like, uh, you know, one response to that is to be like, yeah, why can't we go back to that kind of decorum? <laughs> and to me, honestly, it always seemed a little crooked that uh, everybody was just winking at who was coming in and out of Kennedy or LBJ's hotel room. Oh, it's enormously crooked. But um, how do you want your, where, where do you want your president to be a crook? <laughs> I mean, if you can pick a way. I mean, the theory, so this doesn't hold so much, I feel, for FDR having a secret train. You know, the president who's lying to you about a secret train, what else could he be lying to you about? But right. I feel like that does hold with... Uh, with the, having multiple the, affairs. The president who's having serial girls. affairs yeah. and his, his wife has been separated from him on and off because he's so awful. <laughs> what could that possibly have to do with leadership or integrity? It's true, but I would take a president having affairs uh, over one who's building like border walls and, sure. and prisoner encampments. That's not often a choice you get. All, it's not a choice. Well, it is kind of 
<laughs> in recent years at least. I guess it depends on what the ballot looks like. But I mean, it, there's not like the party of uh the party of philandering nominates whoever right. Bill Clinton and the party of uh, border walls nominates. I mean, in theory you could have a president both philandering and doing border walls, which is probably the case right now, and you could have a president doing neither, which has been the case for much of American history. Well, for at least some of it. You get the sense that Obama and George Walker Bush were both happily Extremely and faithfully faithful married. to their wives. Yeah. Although now I think uh, one is having an affair with the other's wife. Oh yeah, that candy passing. What's that all about? I think Bush was delighted to become a, a bipartisan meme yeah. when he was spotted he's, getting Michelle a cough drop or something. And now it's his trademark move. He's trying to rehabilitate himself as a charming Muppet. <laughs> I don't think I it's paint work. my dog now and I give <laughs> Michelle candy across party lines, I remind you. Yeah. Although I continue to support uh, Brett Kavanaugh. He, uh, it's kind of like I was watching the second candy pass and it really does seem like somebody who's very aware that this, maybe this will go viral. Yeah. He's now the thirstiest ex-president. <laughs> he pulls the candy out and surveys it in the light for a hey, second. Hey, like, millennials. Look at this. What's the tea about this candy? The thing about the choo-choo trains. Again, you just got to jump back. Kapow. It's at least three steps removed. Um, I love that you're getting more engaged in, uh, Sidebars, and I think it's because you're drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper a little bit into the afternoon. I'm putting the pep back in Dr. Pepper right now. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Do you want to sip? I am a freaking pepper. Are you kidding me? I've been a pepper since the since the TV commercials where the guy from from American Werewolf in London did that exciting dance. Wait, that's the same guy from American Werewolf in London? The guy from the Dr. Pepper commercials of the I'm of the a early, pepper. He's a pepper. She's a pepper. Was a cast pepper. in American Werewolf in London from the <laughs> On TV the strength commercial. Of the commercial? Yeah. It was like, that guy. Who's, get that guy. Usually it's the other way around. Like once you're a, uh, once you're a spokesperson, it kills your career because everyone will look at you and be like, why is the Dos Equis guy, right. uh, the, the concierge? Like he, it happened to uh, Flo was one of the receptionists on Mad Men, the Flo from Progressive. Oh, and, no, really? uh, Yeah, she was like a real actress. She was a, had a recurring part on Mad Men. And then as soon as she became Flo, she's done. Right. Luckily, she's a, she's a progressive billionaire, so she doesn't need AMC money anymore. Like that guy from the Can You Hear Me Now Verizon ads who... That guy just has a, a career being... Uh, speaking of... Apparently. Thirsty guys trying to recapture their viral love. Can you hear me now, guy? Apparently he hated working for Verizon. I, I guess I know somebody who knows him. I've heard all these private stories about him. I don't know why. Formerly private stories. You, you remember um, Monica from Friends made her debut in the Bruce Springsteen music video. Sure, you can't start a fire without a spark. That's right. It's uh, the Dancing in the Dark video. And, you know, she's very much my type in that video, but somehow... Didn't you make fun of me for liking Monica because you're a Rachel? I'm definitely a Rachel, but Monica in the in the Dancing in the Dark video, I remember cartoon hearts floating around my head. But oh, by the sure. time she made it to Friends... Black Irish thing with the blue eyes. Oh, she's yeah. like, like if Alec Baldwin was a beautiful woman. Well, she does that thing where she's like, who, me? I mean, I bought it he the first time I saw me. it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. He she just didn't know she was going to be picked. beautiful girl from the crowd. And then later on, I was disappointed to find that the whole thing was staged. Is it, do I count as a pepper? I'm actually going to go one step back, which will help you get back to You to have trains. a diet, Dr. Pepper, which yeah, I feel like. That's my question. Am I a pepper? Mm, it takes about half the pepper out of you, I think. I'm, I'm a half pepper? But it is I'm giving like you a, pep. I'm like those little Costco miniature peppers. I keep, you know, I think people will, listening to the shows, will will be able to identify the ones where you were just tired and sat there just going, mm-hmm. 
Peek behind mm-hmm. the curtain, we record your show, your Thursday show, after the Tuesday show. So if you're a futureling listening to these in alphabetical order on a ruined earth, uh, you have not noticed this. Right. But in our era, we alternated, and we always do John's show second. Right. Which means that I'm bored. <laughs> I just, I just want to go home at this point. Yeah. Checking his phone through the whole thing we're all, while I'm like, <sighs> uh, so. so. Track 61. Hey, look at this from the, from the Bush funeral. Yeah. Uh, note. So, uh, where, how far did you get on track 61? It was not built with federal money, but the railroad had to shell. That must've been expensive. It's just a trunk line for one person. Well, this happens a lot. You know, the, if you stay in the presidential suite at the Waldorf Astoria, it is thousands of dollars a night, $8,000 a night or something like that. But that is not what they charge the United States government when the president stays there. More or less. They charge him considerably less because it's a lost leader for them. The president staying there generates tremendous business and is for this, the hotel. Like, do they feel like if they actually charge market value, he'd be like, whatever, I'm going to the Westin. Well, it's a bad optic, right? To charge the American people, although we are happily paying. Yeah, I'm sure the secret service costs for the visit would be 30 times the uh, the accommodations. Yeah, but they give it to him at, a, at, at the presidential discount because I think they also, I mean, they take over three floors of the hotel or something. Do they toss in like room service? Boy. What about minibar? Like if he's, if the president's checking out there, like, uh, well, you jiggled the thing of pr- the little Pringles thing. Mm-hmm. That's nine bucks. You opened the fridge. So <laughs> you looked at the gym beam. <laughs> um, actually what happens, uh, at the Waldorf Astoria stays at the Waldorf Astoria. The secret service doesn't want you to know whether the president gets into the minibar or not. Right. For kind of obvious reasons. They don't want housekeeping to be corrupted by the. RSU or whatever, the Korea, North Korean Secret Service. Probably the RSU. Yeah. Is that a thing? The RSU, isn't that the, uh, isn't that the evolution of the, the KGB? Yeah, it's not the RSU, it's the FSB. I defer to you on all Soviet-related uh, yeah. acronyms. The, the, after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, it became the Russian Federal Security Service. But because it's in Russian, it's... FSB. And it's not even really an F. It's like a splurg. Think how iconic KGB was. Like you could say it in a movie and everyone would immediately have a million pictures. And, you know, today when I'm sure the Russian espionage threat is probably, you know, just as big a part of geopolitics, I have no idea what the FSB was. Like I assumed the FSB would be like some nice, uh, it's a new deal acronym or it's sure. some home, home loan federal <laughs> I, thing. I work for the FSB, the federal uh, security worked, bank. If you said you worked <laughs> for the FSB, I'd be like, oh, nice government job. Yeah. Good pension. I bet. Well, you know, I'm totally into this spy stuff and I'm like, RSU, FSB, I don't know, man. RSVP. Whatever. Alphabet soup. Am I right? But they don't want the, the secret service doesn't want you to know, uh, and they don't want you to know a lot of things, including how presidents travel these days. But in FDR's for, for security day, reasons. for security reasons and very, you know, and, and security reasons at a lot of different levels. There's they don't, fake motorcades sometimes, right? Like a, there's a second limousine. Who knows which one the guy's in? Every motorcade has fake limousines in it. And also when the president's helicopter flies, when Marine One is in the air, they also have a, a decoy helicopters. And there's often a second fake millennia as well. There's a millennia that's a, a fake, lot of people that's don't know wearing a sweatshirt that says like I don't give a f- about you, <laughs> um, but they can't do like a fake Air Force one because that would be pretty ridiculous to have multiple seven four sevens flying at the same time. But the, they, they what do if the do second do one was like an Airbus, so it was like kind of cheaper 
or it was like an Embraer. I think that would, I think that would. What if it's smaller, but it's much closer to you? Like they fly a much smaller plane, very low. And so no one can tell if it's real Air Force One or not. You don't know which side of Air Force One the terrorist with a shoulder launched like harm missile or whatever. They don't know where he's standing, so they can't. They can't cater to his. And I'm uh, going to presume it's a he. I'm going to use the male pronoun there. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to say he wow. is out there with a missile because I don't know. Uh, hashtag not all terrorists. I have not. John. I have not yet heard of a of a transgender Muslim terrorist or a female. I mean, I don't have to be trans. Yeah, I think I think even less likely. Well, you know why? Because what? assumptions like yours. That's what's key. It's a glass ceiling. It's true. For it's uh, true. I don't want to keep any, terrorists. I don't want to keep any women who are trying to shoot down Air Force One. I don't want to like keep them under some kind of weird patriarchal thumb. If, if, um, but also we'd better stop talking about this because this is precisely the kind of speculation that might attract the attention. How long a, do you have to wonder about uh, your assassination plans on a podcast before you get a phone call? Right. And the thing is the, we're going to find out futurelings may have may have an organization called the RSU. And they're like, he mentioned us. Like, <laughs> click. Did you hear a little click sound? Arura, arura. There's clearly no female uh, Islamist terrorists because uh, if you're a woman, there is no way you want to hang out with 72 virgin men. That's, that's, oh. that's <laughs> It's just not an incentive. Not an incentive. You could just go to an anime convention or something, I guess. You True. Don't, you don't need to blow anything up. Although there have been innumerable female uh, suicide, uh, bombers? suicide bombers. So I wonder what they're being promised. Hmm. You know what? You go back to being a virgin and you get to be one of 72. I don't think that's much of a angle. No. It would probably be more like you go to the separate heaven where they, they leave you alone. Oh, separate heaven. <laughs> <laughs> separate heaven where you can drive and, <laughs> right. and no one is looking at you. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So yeah, so they don't, the president's travel plans never get out in advance. But in FDR's day, of course, that wasn't as possible. And he traveled by train, as many, many U.S. presidents did sure. from the very beginning. the main way of campaigning for over 100 years. It was. FDR had, had though, a private train car built for him, um, what was known as rail car, U.S. car number one. Oh, like in Wild Wild West. Yes, very similar to the one in Wild, uh, Wild Wild West. It's probably based on this. It had, uh, it was armor-plated, and oh, really? For, had, for for what? People on the siding with, with shotguns? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, and I mean, 
even the floor was armor plated. So they anticipated the possibility of there being a bomb placed under the tracks. Mm -hmm. And he used it extensively, both to go between Washington and New York and, and down to Miami, where he vacationed. And it was his sort of office away from home. I mean, he, the, he had also had a presidential yacht. Was it oval shaped? It was the not. The car? Because you go through a tunnel and then you just lose the sides. Right. You know, you can't have an oval office was, on a train It track. was not lozenge shaped, <laughs> but, but it was and remains the heaviest rail car ever built in the United States. Just because of all the metal. Because of, yeah. It's fantastic. But it had like a, it had a wonderful bedroom and meeting room and, um, and it continued to be used. It was used by Truman very successfully during his presidentiality. He uh, he traveled all around the country. And it, in fact, that- the, the word presidency having not yet been coined. Presidentiality. We said back at the time. Um, he, that famous picture where he's holding up the newspaper <laughs> like Dewey defeats Truman. Truman wins presidentiality. <laughs> that was that was uh, taken on the, on the back balcony of this. Yeah, trip. yeah. He, you can see he's on a train. And that train, I guess Eisenhower- Eisenhower was the president to retire that train. I think the last the last trip was Mamie Eisenhower wrote it. And Eisenhower probably the first to have a 747, right? No 747 at that point. In fact, Kennedy... Oh, Kennedy's the first? Kennedy still was traveling in a 707. I think the first 747... Oh, I thought the 747... I thought Kennedy's uh, seven, uh, Air Force One that's on display here in Seattle is a... Uh, 747. I no, the wrong. 747 didn't debut until 1968. Well, your math checks out then. So there would not have been, I don't think, I think probably Nixon. I guess it's true. I've been on that JFK Air Force One and it's, it's not big. No, no, it's quite a bit smaller. It's tiny. Eisenhower was the first president to use the Air Force One call sign though. Right. It just wasn't on the dedicated jet we were imagining today. And FDR's uh, train car, US-1, was, was called POTUS. Really? In its time. I always thought that was a modern coinage. I but, feel like, yeah, that's, it feels very post-Sorkin to me. But they say POTUS, even back then. Maybe they spelled it out. P-O-T-U-S. Yeah. R-S-U. <laughs> Here he comes, P-O-T-U-S. <laughs> Everyone, on guard. But Roosevelt, as part of his masking of his polio, had a, uh, had a limousine and a special car built where the limousine could drive on and off the rail car. So he wouldn't, he could get in the car on the, on the train and it would drive out through a special wide door. The car would drive into the train. This is like a Knight Rider or something. The car would drive into the train. Well, it gets better because when they built track 61, they built it so that the car could drive off the train onto the platform and into a special elevator that was big enough to hold his Packard limousine. And it takes him up to the suite? So there, there are two exits from track 61, one of them into the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria, where he did one time actually drive the car. Do you think he's the only president ever to drive through the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria? Uh, maybe not, because... Because um, Trump did it yesterday. Because this, this track continued to be used and continues to be used, although off record. Oh, it's still there. It's still there. And there's actually... The elevator will take you up to a sort of a brass door that's right on 49th street between park and Lexington. And it has, it has an address 101 121 on the door. And you can still get down to track 61 through this entrance. Do you have to say, a, is it like a speakeasy or do you have to be like swordfish and I they think, let you down? I think one day a year, the runes appear if you speak in Elvish <laughs> to it. Or no, you'd have to speak in Dwarvish to it because it was built by dwarves. You have to look for the thrush breaking the shell or whatever. 
so it's unclear, or rather it is unspoken, uh, whether or not presidents continue to use it. Although they have, so during uh, the sort of 9-11 era, when George Bush went to New York to, to lobby for the invasion of Iraq. And to pose with rubble and throw pitches at Yankee uh, games. No, that, and, it came later. He did, he did that like immediately. That was his whole, um, Oh, you're talking about later UN kind of, yeah. Uh, when he went to the UN and, and Colin Powell held up a baggie of cocaine and said that it was weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> really? He held up a baggie of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Why did we believe that guy? He took it. From I was <laughs> snorting this stuff and I realized I, I became aware Mandrake yeah. in the middle of the physical act of love. That, someone, that there were WMDs yeah. in Iraq. Uh, I think it was a mistake. He had a baggie of anthrax, but George Bush had a baggie of Coke and they got mixed up in their in their gym bags. Uh, but during that period, they actually had a locomotive and a presidential car idling under the Waldorf Astoria. So that they, they didn't turn the motor off waiting there in case he needed to make a rapid escape. Is it still like an old-timey steam locomotive? No, it's a diesel locomotive, but oh, it's uh, diesel. It's not like a, it's not an, uh, like an electric New York subway car. No, they they made it diesel so that in the event of some kind of electromagnetic pulse or otherwise a disabling of the subway system, which happens every day in Manhattan, they could continue to haul ass through town in this diesel locomotive. Oh, wow! And that's the most exciting presidential thing you could do, probably. Can is, you imagine is escape a, a burning city in your own? private underground diesel train. Well, this will infuriate New Yorkers, but the claim is that from the Waldorf Astoria to JFK, that transit can be made in seven minutes in this presidential train. Wow. They will, they route all, all other subways to the side and they get, he gets in the express and they gun it. When I'm president, I'm going to be like, uh, I prefer Newark. Yeah, right. I, I, I like Newark. Take me out of LaGuardia. Although, no, please do not ever take me out of LaGuardia no. again. I sat on that tarmac one time for five hours waiting to fly. Is LaGuardia a little closer, though? It's much closer. So why go all the way out to JFK? Well, LaGuardia is not a secure airport. And in mm. fact, when the president visits New York, Air Force One parks over in New Jersey somewhere. And now that Trump there, there was a lot of fear when Trump first took office that, in fact, he, I think he said he didn't want to live in the White House. He wanted to continue to live in Trump Tower. Was that the main source of fear was where he was, was would be his residence? <laughs> that, that was the main weeks, thing that was worrying everyone? That first few where weeks. Where is he going to live? The thing is, what worries the Secret Service is different from what worries you and me. That's correct. Uh, so they were trying to figure out like they, and, and I think eventually they said, you cannot live at Trump Tower. Yeah, I think if he had his, uh, his druthers... Although he's not the kind of person who has druthers, but if he did, he would probably, uh, he would prefer to be in Manhattan. He'd be eating Big Macs right now in his Trump Tower and... Well done steaks with ketchup on them. Yeah. And uh, there were all these problems, like the nearest place you can land a helicopter is up in Grand Union Square or whatever, up there several or a couple of blocks at least from Trump Tower. And then really the closest place you can land a couple of helicopters is up in Central Park. Mm. So getting him out of New York was going to be very complicated. In the case of some kind of John Carpenter scenario. Up until the Obama administration, every U.S. president from the construction of the Waldorf Astoria to the present or to 2015, every president stayed in the presidential suite at the Waldorf Astoria, including Obama early on in his presidency. But then the hotel was purchased by the Chinese. 
And there was some Secret Service fear that the Chinese government would have infiltrated the hotel and and w- would be it's using bugged like the yeah. like the eighties era embassy in Moscow. That's right. They got in there and were going to use cyber hacking on the president. And so he he was the uh, the last president to stay at the Waldorf because now the mini bar has has Chinese surveillance. Yeah, it's got. He did touch the Pringles. He beep, touched beep, the beep. peanut M and M's too. He owes us nine dollars. <laughs> Uh, so I think given that George Bush had that escape plan in place and that locomotive idling on track 61, I think there is quite a bit of suspicion that it remains an active, an active stop, not only for presidents, but perhaps for the wealthy few. Anybody with the money, I guess, right? Uh, it used to be very popular to have a private train car. And in fact, when I was a kid, (laughs) Yes. It was popular when you were good to have a private train car. Well, no, but I have ridden in a private train car. <gasps> Whose? Many times. Uh, my father in the 1970s was the chief counsel of the Alaska Railroad, which at the time was um, a federally owned railroad, but not connected to the federal system. The Alaska Railroad was run by the Department of Transportation. And my dad was the chief legal officer. And they, the Alaska Railroad had a private train car that dated to this era. It had bedrooms and a big living room and a balcony on the back. And they would connect it to a train if an executive, basically the president of the railroad or my dad, wanted to go somewhere along the railroad. So he had he would have it, I mean, this is a different time, uh, but he would have this car brought up and connected to the train and we would go on official business up to Fairbanks or whatever. And it would be my dad, me and my sister in this. Did it secretly pull up underground under the uh, Fairbanks federal building? No, or? there are no undergrounds in Alaska. Because <laughs> it's frozen. Um, it's permafrost. It's but not, it's, it's it, not beautiful hoarfrost. It's a wonderful experience. And this thing was was kitted out in top 1940s technology, which then seemed pretty amazing. Black and white TV and a and a phone that went ring-a-ding-a-ding. So I know that there are lots of world transit systems that have disused trains and train platforms like this, right? Uh, in London, I know, if, if you ever watch a movie or an episode of Sherlock or whatever that's set in London, if there's ever a tube station, it's almost certainly Aldwych wow. Station, which was, uh, I think, shut down in the early 20th century. And since then, well, during the war, it was an air raid shelter, and they they all the art galleries would put their art there during the blitz. And today it's just where, you know, V for Vendetta shoots its, right. It's train scenes, uh, because it's, it's tailor made for a film crew without shutting anything down. It's kind of inevitable when you're building a mass transit system that over time, certain stations will become disused. And I think in the popular imagination, it's, uh, because those stations have low ridership, but in most cases, it's actually like in New York, there are a dozen or more, uh, subway stops that are abandoned. They're still there. They never got repurposed. They're just, they're still there. But the reason isn't that they have low ridership. It is that as they expand other stations, uh, they're deemed just too proximate. Right. So they don't want the train stopping every 150 feet. And as you know, as Broadway and Lafayette grows, they decide that canal street doesn't, it doesn't need to be there. And depending on when they close those stations, some of them can be incredible time capsules. I do uh, want to say that when we say low ridership, we should say low ridership. 
Isn't that better? Get a little higher. Doot, 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 doot. Yeah, that, that's happened to many London stations, I yeah. think. Um, you know, once Holborn opens, you don't need Aldwych or whatever. It's, you know, it's right there. Yeah. But there are quite a few instances of, I mean, the abandoned railway station is a whole version of train spotting. In particular in England, in the 1960s, the English went through a train modernization program that was sort of pushed by a single guy, by a man named Beeching, who, who put forward this plan to decommission an enormous portion of the British rail system. The British rail system underwent this like spasm of growth before World War I. Uh, they just got so excited about trains. They just put trains everywhere. And in fact, what's crazy is right before the advent of the railroad, the British had built canals everywhere. There's a, there used to be a, an interlocking canal system that would allow you to take a boat from Manchester all the way down to I've uh, walked by that London. canal in Manchester. So you're saying like 10 years later, this was all obsolete once, well, once steam engines? Well, it's like the Erie Canal. The Erie yeah. Canal, they spent enormous resources building this and it was going to connect Buffalo to, or connect the Great Lakes to the Hudson River. And, um... Almost within a decade of when they opened the Erie Canal, the railroad came along and completely made it obsolete. It's like MySpace. Yeah. It was just like, or or uh, what was the one before MySpace? Friendster. Friendster, right. It's the Friendster of The Friendster of canals. canals. And, and interestingly, one of the most, in, I wouldn't call it famous because no one really is paying attention to Rochester, New York. I'm afraid to say. Sorry, Rochester. It's hurtful. And in fact, Rochester. If you're studying the opioid epidemic, maybe. Rochester is named after an ancestor of mine, Nathaniel Rochester. No. Yeah. Who, mar who married Jane Eyre? Uh, no. No, that was a different Rochester. Is it related? Is Rochester and Roderick uh, etymologically related at all? No. They're not. No, oh. the Rodericks married into the Rochesters, but the Rochesters are an old American family and the Rodericks are a new one. Ah, uh, I see. The Rochester is the old money. Yeah, that's right. Well, the old family. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't actually have money? The money didn't percolate down. They named down. a town after a poor, poor family? Or did they win a contest or no, something? No, they, they were doing okay, but I, I, I don't think of the Rochesters as having money because they didn't give me any money. I see. If nobody gives you money, they can't be rich. That's right. That's <laughs> right. You probably think I'm incredibly poor then. Uh, well, you've yet to give me a damn thing. You just won $50 on your internet thing, and you're like, how do I spend this $50? And I said, give it to me. And you acted like I had said nothing. No, well, I, I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good little witticism. I could have rung my bell mm. if I had one. Uh, but Rochester has an abandoned subway system. Wait, the whole system? The whole system. And some of it, or a large, uh, kind of the main line was built in the remnant of the Erie Canal as it flowed through <laughs> Rochester. So they took the old path under the city and they turned it into a subway. And then the subway itself they turned it into a subway when Rochester was a burgeoning American manufacturing city. Mm -hmm. And then as Rochester fell into decline, they also closed the subway. And which, put the canal back. They did not put the canal should, back. That's what they should do. They should just flood it. Well, the canal system, the Erie Canal is always being restored. And in the United Kingdom, their canal system also is having a resurgence. People are, are advocating kind of restoring disused parts of it and, it's, it's really a kind of a great little 
feature of the country. I'm sure it's fantastic, but is it really efficient for goods and services anymore? No, no, right? no but it's neat to have a little canal boat and it's sort of Amsterdam-y. There's so many locks is what I've noticed. Like what, just walking along that canal in Manchester, I was like, I can't imagine trying to go through here on a, any kind of boat or barge. It would, uh, it, there was a lock every, you know, 500 feet. There are these wonderful places along that system where a railroad will be going in a trench. There will be another railroad crossing it over that in a bridge. And then above that will be the canal in a viaduct. <laughs> the canal's so the, overhead. The canal is over two trail railway tracks. It's great. But during the beaching plan, they took so many railroads out of the United Kingdom and left all these rail right-of-ways, beautiful viaducts and tunnels and, and, and paths cutting through the countryside and railway stations all abandoned. And in recent years, they've turned a lot of those into bike paths. That's, that's happened here with like streetcar right. lines. A lot of American cities have gotten great bike trails and jogging trails out of their well, and old, lines. old railroads too yeah. uh, have, have turned into bike paths. But people are, are trying to get some of those rail lines restored in the UK. But there's the, the whole train spotting culture is really into old railway stations. And very British, right? I mean, for all the, for every American train spotters, there are 20,000 British people in anoraks out looking at a, just like at a, at a platform. There it goes. And you know why? Thomas the Tank Engine. They all were raised on uh, oh, of course. Uh, uh, talking trains with different personalities. And of course, if you believe that every train has a, has a story and a, and a biography, right. you're going to go stand by the tracks. And even if they don't have googly eyes, you're going to be like, ah, there's the 417. Well, as we know, all British people are overgrown children also. They are. Um, so they're just like. They, they've got those rosy cheeks. They want like, people to bring them cookies in the yeah. middle of the afternoon yep. uh, with tea. That's right. They're breast fetishists. <laughs> they're, yeah, like, they like <laughs> Benny Hill's bosomy women because they were all breastfed till they were like nine. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But one of the uh, most famous sort of abandoned railroads or abandoned railroad histories is the story of the U-Bahn in Berlin. Oh, now we're talking. And I know that you know some things about this. So uh, Berlin had a, a vibrant subway system. And the, the then predated the, uh, the, the wall, right? Right. Well, it was uh, one of the early subways, actually. Berlin was interconnected. There's U2 songs about it. Are there U2 songs about the Rochester subway? Hmm, Probably no. not. No, although there might be songs by like Duke Jupiter about <laughs> the Rochester subway system. 
to people in upstate New York, that Duke Jupiter reference is just for you. Seven people just went <laughs> through the roof. <laughs> Seven 52-year-olds were like, what? <laughs> uh, but in, 19, in the early 1960s, when the uh, East German government cracked down on uh, on migration through Berlin and built the they were losing Berlin like wall. they had lost like twenty percent of the population yeah. because people would just be like, "Wait, it's better over there." I'm just going to walk over there, and there will be shopping. I and can literally take the subway and not be in a like communist totalitarian society. So they built this wall down the middle of the city that people might have heard of, even futurelings might have heard of this Berlin Wall. What did they call this Berlin this Berlin Wall? They called it the Berlin Wall, oh, or they called no the the East Germans called it the anti imperialist protection wall or something. Is that like true? That. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, did, there's the AIPW. It did not, nope. it was not called the Berlin Wall. Well, they had to have a different name because theirs had no graffiti. They had a much cleaner wall than we did. They in the did. West. If you graffitied a wall in Berlin, let me tell you what, mister, you met Alexander Solzhenitsyn is what happened. The rest of us pronounce it Solzhenitsyn, but you say Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> it's Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> That's actually a correct L. You're going to confuse everyone. <laughs> so when they built the wall, what happened to the subway? Well, so certain parts of the U-Bahn actually were contained within either side of Berlin. And so those train lines could continue to operate. But there were lots of crossing points and lots of train lines that went from one side to the other that had to, that were actually walled up with bricks. There were a few lines which remained open, which went from the western side to the eastern side and then back to the west. And so there were subway stops in East Germany that the train went past on its way from one West German stop to the other. Because East Germans were not allowed to go down and use that platform, so it was effectively closed. Right, it was closed. I think there were East German guards standing there giving you the hairy eyeball as you went through, because the trains had to slow as they went through East Germany, too. Uh, The tracks weren't maintained to the same standard. So your subway train would slow to 20 miles an hour. (laughs) To an eerie pace (laughs) as you go through this dimly lit Twilight Zone station. Yeah, where guys in fur hats just like stared at you impassively, impassively, and also impassively. Probably both, if the doors don't open. Uh, There was a stop where you could get off in East Germany as a West German. And I think you wrote a little bit about this in one of your weird books for children, didn't you? Or in some, one of your many columns that appear next to Marilyn Voss Savant. I like when you're doing your little uh, late night (laughs) show hosting where it's like, it's now it says here, Ken, (laughs) you have have a story about the U-Bahn. No, I've read, I've read a lot of your written work because it appears, you know, in dentist's office and stuff (laughs) where, where I'm often waiting I did, I, I did a weekly column for a long time for uh, a Condé Nast travel magazine about uh, weird spots on the Earth's surface. Yeah, and, I uh, saw. I used to see that all the time. And yeah, so this Friedrichstrasse station was like one of the it, right now. It's the busiest station in Berlin. You know, in the in the unified era um, during World War II, it was where all the Kinder transport um, kids left for England, fleeing the Holocaust. In one of the Bourne movies, it's where Jason Bourne jumps down from a train station onto a barge. Right. It's like the, the reverse of your of your canal <laughs> over the train tracks thing. <laughs> huh? But during the Cold War, it got very interesting because that was right on the border. It was a big checkpoint. Sure, when, that river was the border. Yeah, and when they put up the wall, they had to divide that station in two. And so much of the, many of the S-Bahn trains and all of the U-Bahn trains through Friedrichstrasse were only for West Berliners. 
So the S-Bahn was the trains, uh, th- those were the trains that went out to the suburbs. Yeah. And the U-Bahn were the trains that were, that went within the city. Yeah, it's effectively yeah. the subway. And so you could actually cross an international border by changing floors. You know, you'd go down a flight of stairs in East Germany and you'd be directly below where you were, but now you'd be in West Germany because, you you know, that would be on the other side of the checkpoint. So it was probably the only place on earth where a national border actually went on the Z axis, you know, <laughs> between up and down instead of uh, north and south. Or, Going down to or West Germany or yeah, up exactly. to exactly. Exactly. I had the eerie experience in 1989. I, uh, before the wall came down, I went to East Berlin by accident. I went there on purpose. By accident. I was misled <laughs> by some of my fellow travelers. I was told I would have a job and apartment waiting. I, uh, you didn't defect. I didn't. No, I mean, I, I traveled to East Berlin officially through checkpoints and with passports and looking through little slots and Nice. And, uh, and, and walking through a maze by who came in from the cold stuff. But the first time I went, I was on a train going through West Berlin and I just was dozing, smoking cigarettes and I don't know what, playing with my pocket knife. You and didn't have a phone yet. So you were just thinking about a girl and whittling. That's right. doop de doo de doo And I looked down and the train was going across a river and I knew that that was maybe uh, like not the best deal. Like a different socioeconomic system might await you on the other side of the Well, and as it went across the river, then it went across a lot of different barbed wires. And I said, this can't be good. And so as the train pulled into the, the next station, I got off and I was very in East Berlin. Everyone was in a polyester suit that was the color of like gray, like some kind of gray, uh, gray, green Hanukkah gray. (laughs) And I stood out like a sore thumb, right? I had long hair and was wearing some kind of ski jacket and had playing with a pocket knife. You looked like a British train spotter. I really, really did. It wasn't an anorak though. It was like one of those, it was a eighties ski jacket. So it had like lightning bolts on it. And, um, was it puffy? How much puffier were you than the average East German? I was, I had a lot more puff. They they couldn't afford down. They had to eat all their feathers during the, they did have puffy jackets, but they were again, the color of like coffee that had been out in the rain for a year. (laughs) Only sad colors allowed. So I talked to someone, I went up to someone and said, Hey, I don't, I'm not in West Berlin. Am I? And they were like, you are not. Uh, you need to go down these stairs, go over to the other side and get on the train going the opposite way. And I did. No one molested me. I stood there for a long time because th- those trains don't come that often. If you tried to leave the station, probably that's when you would have wound, in, yeah. wound up in trouble. I would have had to have gone through some kind of check and then that would have been a, and not, I don't mean a Czech person. I it mean, was a German person. It was a German who, person. Who looked like a Czech. But they would have given me the, given me the business. I talked to someone at that point who said I could have gone all the way to Poland if I had just had the right. Just had the right anorak? If I just had the right <laughs> amount of money, if I'd been able to pay. They, if my ski jacket had been a little more depressing, <laughs> I could have just got off in uh, Krakow. But the train came in and I got back on it and went back across and there, no one ever checked my ticket or asked me for any money. It was just like, oh, okay, could I have, could I have kept going? Could I have gone to Poland? Could I right now be married to a Russian woman and living in St. Petersburg, uh, having forgotten English entirely? I came very close to your dream. My, uh, my wife uh, actually lived in East Berlin in the- uh, In the 90s. Right. It was, it was right after the wall came down um, because her dad was with the Foreign Service. I think at the time he was the commercial attache to East Germany or 
and then probably Germany. So there was um, still an East Germany at the time. I think it was probably reunified. What's that, 89? Yeah, it happened the next year in 1990. It took him took him a while, but as soon as the wall came down, it it came down with a quickness. She was probably there at unification then. Yeah. Um, and the place where they had them live was uh, East Germany. It was in East Germany. It was on East Berlin. And it had formerly been a Stasi listening post. Oh. So every room in their house had like eight phone jacks, oh, which so was great. amazingly convenient. <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> until, you real, until you had a mental image of like what was going on in your living room or your guest room. Right, guys in leather five trench years coats. previous. Exactly. So I went to, the first time I visited East Berlin, it was you know, six months, I guess, before the wall came down. It was like in May or June of, of 89. Hold on. Are you taking credit? No. No, are you, are I had nothing saying, to do with as that. a result. No, they were not impressed by me. I went over and changed <laughs> money and had this astonishing number of, of East German Deutschmarks that I struggled to spend. And I went to the nicest restaurant in East Berlin with a couple of like American friends. And we had a lavish and disgusting meal and were drunk. You ordered every bottle of everything. And were loud and just the worst kind of American. I mean, we didn't, we weren't wearing college sweatshirts that said like Dartmouth. So we weren't the worst kind of Americans. I mean, we at least looked like. So you didn't help the wall come down. You probably kept it up for a few months. Yeah. Like people, uh, the, wall, the wall would have come down a few months earlier if you guys had just uh, been a little better behaved at dinner. It was kind of crazy that you could go over there and spend a day. I mean, you couldn't spend the night, but we spent a day and and struggled to, to spend the amount of Deutschmarks that we were forced to change. But then I, I was in, where was I? I was in Florence and picked up the International Herald Tribune and it said crazy things going on in Berlin. And it was November 9th or something like that. And I immediately, I didn't have, there was no reason for me to be in Florence. I had already exhausted all of the people that might've hosted me and they were. Your, your travel is based not on tourist attractions, but who has a couch. Yeah, they were well ready for me to, uh, <laughs> to, to, move to be gone. And so I jumped on a train and showed up in Berlin, you know, a day and a half later. And the, are, you, are you in the videos, like with a hammer? I looked for myself in every photograph. I mean, I had really long hair and I had a hammer and I pounded on the wall and I sat on top of it and people took my picture. There were lots of photographers there, but I've never found myself in all of those books and reports. I'm just like, come on, one picture is all I ask. Just let my experience be documented by one notable. I love this idea of you as some kind of Forrest Gump character popping up at every important juncture of history. Yeah, I like it too, but it's unfortunately like, as far as the world is concerned, it's I'm invisible. I do pop up everywhere, but I'm I'm not even sure. Am I real? Maybe you'll, well, may, if this holds, maybe you'll get to see track 61 someday. You is know? this, is this Garfield without Garfield? Are you just <laughs> John like talking pathetically to himself? Everyone else who listens to this <laughs> podcast just hears me talking. <laughs> like <laughs> I have created you. But the, uh, the, when Berlin was first unified, there were all those ghost stations, which actually in, have a name in German. Geisterbahnhof. Geisterbahnhof. Ghost train Literally station. ghost stations, yeah. Uh, they were perfectly preserved in their, or not perfectly, but they were preserved in their state in 1961, what they had been with advertisements on the walls. Oh, and, nice. And little, you know, direction signs and old phones and stuff in the offices. And so the German transit authorities wanted to reopen these stations, but they didn't 
quite have the sentimentality for Eastern Europe that we do now. And so they didn't keep any of the old ads. They didn't preserve any of the stations in their uh, Geist Bahnhof. In their, in their haunted state. Their, their Scheisse Bahnhof state. They could have, you know, put up a plexiglass over the old Sure, size. like what if today you walked through and it's just all these 60s era ads for Knorr oh, soups or whatever. People would love it, but, and I like you pronounce it Knorr. But, uh, but no, I, they I always put Kenora on my Canuck first. They, they cleaned it all up. And now those stations, some of them are some of the busiest stations in Berlin, but others that had been very important stations like Potsdamer or Potsdam, I guess, Potsdam plots. I think that's right. Uh, which was a main station during the divided years became kind of a. Uh, a Geister town? Yeah, just not, not a useful station anymore. There were Because others. there used to be federal stuff there that's not there anymore or right. something? And, and eventually that became a ghost station, closed because there wasn't any use for it anymore. The last victim of the Cold War. Potsdam plots. And that concludes track 61. Entry 1324.EZ0808, certificate number 33725, in the omnibus. Listeners, we speak to you from a time when there is an epidemic of social media. We hope these will all become Geister Netwerken for you. <laughs> uh, but in our day, they are busy with the metaphorical trains of, of memes and quips and uh, uh, abandoned rail cars, cat videos whizzing by, canals that have been filled in and reopened. John and I are uh, extremely supportive of social media. We love it and think it's been a net good for humanity. I'll say. And as a result, we are very active at Omnibus Project on every platform you can think of, even the Geister Plattformen. Ge Geister Plattformen. Go look, go look up uh, at Omnibus Project on Friendster. See what you find. Shucky darn and slopthechickens.org. <laughs> and is that, is that the very first social media network? It was for farmers. <laughs> it's like farm -er, like Tinder. Oh, awful, like Grinder. That's right. Wait, Tinder has an E, huh? Uh, oh, I, well, I don't know. Grinder doesn't. Grinder does not. Not that have I would e. know. But. <laughs> we seem very convinced that Grinder does not have an E. Yeah, Tinder does have an E. That's how behind the scenes of internet dating we are. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, John is at John Roderick on Tinder and Grinder mm -hmm. and Twitter and Instagram. Come find me. I'm at Ken Jennings only on Twitter and Grinder, of course. Uh, we also maintained an electronic mail account, if you know what that is, at, uh, I'm going to say at again in the wrong way. At. Which was. At, at. Omnibusproject at HowStuffWorks.com. If you wanted to send us physical corporeal items, not Geister artifacten. No. But actual. But, but actual things. That you could touch or uh, rub or uh, not eat, we've said. No, but look at snowflakes through. Sure, if you want to send us uh, some kind of microscope camera or a, a period map of the Berlin U-Bahn. Just go down to the time post and send it through what we know to be true, a wormhole. Send it through a fourth dimensional wormhole to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you're interested in... Uh, the philosophical goals of the omnibus to such a degree that you want to commune with other like-minded souls, um, whether they're tentacled, silicon-based, uh, metaphorical thought forms that have somehow found a way to access this, 
they all congregate at the Futurelings group on Facebook. Be sure if you're joining the Futurelings group to answer the two test questions if they appear. If you are on an Android device, maybe they don't appear, in which case, tough luck. At the time of this recording, one of the questions asks for the shape of time, which is not something we have uh, mentioned in a while, I think. No, we haven't. And in fact, uh, there are a lot of uh, different ideas about what shape time is. Time is a stellar dendritic snowflake. Mm. Perhaps. Perhaps. I have no idea. It is a Dolly-esque melting clock on top of a fractal, like, trip-out poster from a college dorm. (laughs) Turn on the black light and the universe gets crazy. Listeners, from our vantage point, inside an abandoned FDR-era rail car parked on track 61 under the Waldorf, under the Chinese-owned Waldorf Astoria Hotel. That is where we record the show. I think it's time that everyone should know. (laughs) With a diesel locomotive idling, constantly Ready to go, should something happen. Filtering diesel smoke up the elevator shaft into your $8,000 a night room. Uh, We have no idea how long our civilization survives. We hope and, or survived, from your standpoint. Yeah, tense is difficult. Uh, we hope and pray, or we hoped and prayed, that the catastrophe that we fear, that you know, may never come. It's hilarious how much you must laugh every episode. At our naivete. Because you know, it's to you, it is the December 7th, 1941. It is the 1492, when your Columbus sailed the chlorine ocean yellow. What if it's not hilarious then? What if it's sad? What if it's poignant that we always seem so uh, hmm. that we always seem so lively, but they know they know it's so it was all doomed. They miss us. They they're all wearing red baseball hats that say "Make the Earth Great Again" by, Take li- a- <laughs> by listening to the Omnibus Podcast. If the work if the worst comes soon, and if the work comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon. For another entry in the omnibus.